episode, we open our Bibles to Judges chapter 17. This chapter introduces us to a man named Micah. Micah admits to his mother that he had stolen silver from her, and his admission comes because, well, he's afraid. He's afraid of a curse that she had placed upon the one who stole it. They both have a plan to override the curse, but in doing so, they demonstrate just how far the Israelites have departed from the proper worship of God. Good morning and blessed Eastertide to you. Today is Thursday, April 20th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Explore their many offerings of foreign language materials rooted in the Lutheran tradition on their website at lhfmissions.org. Please join me in welcoming my guest this morning to help us study Judges 17 and see how we can connect it to our lives today. It's the Reverend Terry Yar, pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Chillicothe, Ohio. Pastor Yar, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to have you on the program. If I'm not mistaken, though, this is your first time on with us uh, on Thy Strong Word. Isn't that correct? It is. Well, excellent. Well, you know, what I like to do whenever we have brand new guests is if you would just take a few moments and share with us a little bit about how God is working through you and the saints there at Our Savior in uh, Chillicothe. I think I pronounced that right. I'm not sure. Yes, Chillicothe. Okay, mm-hmm. Chillicothe. Excellent. Well, tell us a little bit about how uh, what God's doing through you guys there in ministry. Well, it's interesting. Uh, uh, we're a small congregation, um, and we had something kind of dropped into our laps a couple of years ago. Uh, we had an individual come to us uh, looking for a facility in which to operate her early learning center. And um, we, at that point, had several classrooms in a newer wing of the building that were not being used for the most part. So uh, we've worked out arrangements, and, and for more than a year now, we've, uh, we've watched little children um, uh, being nurtured and growing up in our facility. Wow, that's great. You know, a, a lot of congregations uh, have early childhood centers um, and they do them as a mission or whatever. I think this might be the first, though, that it kind of, at least I've heard of, where someone come to you and said, we could use the space and we're willing to partner with you. And I guess you get the opportunity then to share Jesus with all these little kids. What a great opportunity. Oh, it it has been wonderful. Um, she, uh, this is a, it's a private business, but uh, the woman who runs it is a, is a dedicated Christian and wanted spiritual support for the children under her care. And um, I've just been amazed by how things have developed. We were able to uh, provide uh, spiritual lessons, like Sunday school lessons, on a weekly basis for the children. Um, We even have been able to arrange for them to have music lessons. Well, that's really that's really neat. I mean, what a it's kind of the best of both worlds. She takes care of the business aspect, and then she. Uh, in the best possible way, outsources that uh, spiritual aspect to you guys. What a great way to partner with somebody in the community. Well, I uh, take it. Now, we're a little ways away from uh, Easter. I guess we've had some time to relax, but I hope that your Easter and Holy Week celebrations were eventful. Uh, certainly a busy time for us uh, you know, this time of year, but I think, at least for me, things have calmed down. I hope they've calmed down for you, too. Oh, it's getting there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, excellent. Well, our text today is uh, sort of an interesting one. It doesn't really reference a judge. You know, we've been going through judges, and the and the text have always been referencing a particular judge that God has raised up. Right now, it doesn't really reference that. It's almost like uh, an appendix, a story that's sort of added in to demonstrate some things for us, and it's about a man named Micah. But before we read any of the text and start tearing it apart, uh, it might be a good idea for us to begin with a word of prayer. And I like to always in- introduce and invite our guests to do that for us. So if you would start us off with prayer, I'd appreciate it. Okay. Well, Lord, our God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of prayer and for the opportunity that we've had just recently to celebrate our Lord's resurrection. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have hope. 
We ask for the guidance of your spirit now as we uh, study uh, the, uh, the word and, and its teaching from ancient times and the lessons that it has for us concerning our relationship with you and the gospel of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, so so today we're going to be into chapter 17. We've just finished with talking about Samson, which is always a great story, a very familiar one, one that the Sunday school kids hear about, one that most Christians have at least heard about. I think this is the exact opposite. I would imagine that if you were to ask your average Christian, uh, do you know anything about the story of Micah and the Levite in Judges? I think a great deal of them would have never heard of it, or at least think that they've never heard of it. And I have to admit that before intentionally studying judges for this program, um, I don't, I don't recall this event at all. This is not a very familiar one, is it? It's, it's not one of those passages that you would typically preach about. Yeah, but you know what? I think it would be a good preaching one as I've read through it in preparation for today. Uh, but you're right. It's not one that shows up in the lectionary, not one that you think, uh, you know, hey, I'm going to do a series on Micah and the Levite. Uh, but I think we're going to find that there's quite a bit here for us to digest. Um, I'm going to read the first six verses, which essentially is the first half of the chapter. It's a very short chapter. Uh, here we go. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by Yahweh. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to Yahweh from my hand for my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So taking it back to the top, we are introduced to this man of the hill country of Ephraim. His name is Micah. Uh, tell us about Micah. You know, I think it's interesting because we're not really given any introduction uh, to him. It starts right off with this story about uh, him admitting this theft to his mother. Uh, what, what are we seeing here? Well, well, that's a strange thing. What we're seeing, I think, is uh is uh, an example of uh, of a man who uh, demonstrates what all too often people actually experience in their family relationships, and that is uh, an individual who is dishonest with with his with his own mother, um, and and that may seem strange, but if you're but if you pay attention to the world around us, that happens all the time. That really is a real life situation. You know, she's she's been complaining that this money was taken from her. And I guess he feels guilty. He feels guilty because he took it. But then I think what stands out here, too, is that she uttered a curse about it. Right. <laughs> and, and and they took curses seriously. I mean, this is, you know, curses and inviolable. It's unalterable. So when she utters this curse. And he he mentions it, right? He says, you spoke it in my ears. And I really get the sense that he really is afraid. Maybe it's a little less even the idea that, well, I shouldn't have taken this money from mom or this silver, I should say, from mom. But more about he's worried about the curse. Yes. And, and I, I get the impression from the way this is expressed that when she discovers the money is missing and then she expresses this curse or lays this curse upon whoever upon whoever took it she has no idea it was her own son but her son may have been standing right there when she said it yeah and, he definitely uh, he yeah he definitely is getting the brunt of it she's walking around probably saying you know uh, curse be the one who took this now she probably uttered 
an actual curse, like, you know, may such and such happen. We're not told what she actually utters, but then he's probably thinking, oh no, that's me. What, what do I do? Right. I'm, I'm reminded of the story of, of Bela. Uh, you may re- recall that, um, who was actually hired to pronounce a curse upon the people of Israel. And the reason he was, and he was making money doing this because he had a reputation for curses that actually happened. That'd be pretty good business going around just cursing people and then maybe <laughs> trying to, trying to make them happen. Well, you know, so curses was something that God would have forbidden in his, um, in his way. He wouldn't have wanted people to be cursing one another, to curse others. And I, I guess I imagine, too, because of the, the mixed way in which this plays out in terms of you have gods, household gods, and then you have Yahweh, too, I, I imagine that they're probably even using the name of Yahweh in order to ev- invoke this curse. They're evoking this curse with God's name, which certainly is an abuse of it, not something that he would have wanted them to do. Yeah, you, you, you really couldn't get any closer to the specific wording of, of God's commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Yeah, we often think of taking the name in vain using cuss words or, um, you know, using it carelessly, as the, as the small catechism says. But, yeah, you're right. Really on the nose would be taking God's name and using it for your own purposes. Um, I do, by the way, think it's interesting and worth mentioning um, that— in the Hebrew, they're actually, it doesn't tell us what it is 1,100 pieces. Actually, it doesn't tell us 1,100 of what of silver there is. It, it kind of says, you know, 1,100 silver, and it's just sort of blank. Uh, it, it's just, the reason I bring that up is just because I think it's a little bit interesting. This wouldn't have been coinage. There is no king. There's no coins. Uh, very likely, these are probably just scrap pieces of silver. Um, still a considerable amount for people who you know, don't have anything. Uh, it still had lots of value, but I think it's just worth mentioning that you know they're we're not really they're not like coins or anything like that. It's just sort of like scrap silver, and and here he is stealing it from his mom. We don't have any indication of their wealth, but I have a feeling that if he's stealing money from his own mom, they're probably not doing too great. <laughs> well, it, and in other translations, it's it's called shekels. But I, I think what I suspect what it is is just a weight rather than a particular shape. It's a measurement of weight. Yeah, I would agree with that too, for sure. Um, you know, just some sort of unit of measure, scrap matter. You know, and it weighed eleven hundred shekels. Shekels certainly wouldn't have been a weight. Um, yeah, and so they, he he takes this silver from her, and she curses him by the name of the Lord. Um, and then his mother said, when she finds out it's him, it's it's almost as if she's trying to reverse the curse, because then she's, she doesn't say, like, I take back the curse. She now tries to bless him, presumably by the same name. So, blessed be my son by Yahweh. Um, did you find anything interesting about that, about how it's not as though she says, Oh, okay, well, since it's you, I forgive you. It was like, well, no, now I have to evoke a blessing to override or try to counteract the curse. What did you find about that? I, I, yeah, I think that's I think that's valid, but I, I also think the one consideration here is is this issue of forgiveness, and that is that if you offer someone forgiveness in itself, that is a blessing from God. Now, I, I don't I know if that's that. what yeah. she's referring yeah. to, and I think she's referring to much more than that. But uh, but I think there's an implication there. Well, certainly blessing, you know, blessing others by God, there is no greater blessing than the forgiveness that we receive from Christ, and then we now, overflowing with that forgiveness, share it with others. Um, yeah, I can see that for sure, you know, because his, his mother reacts by by asking Yahweh to bless him. But then I guess what happens next reveals that things are not well, at least in terms of the way people are worshiping the one true God in Israel. Because in verse 3, he gives her back the 1,100 pieces of silver, and then she says, okay, I dedicate this silver 
to Yahweh from my hand for my son. So she's made the curse, then she's asked for the blessing or made the blessing, and now when he gives her back the money, she says, okay, well, I don't even want the money. I'm going to dedicate this money to Yahweh, which, you know, we could think of a million different ways that she could use that money in the service of the Lord, but then tell us a little bit, tell us how she ends up using it. <laughs> well, well, that's the interesting thing, because uh, it, 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 one way to look at it is that she's, uh, she's offering this as a kind of a sacrifice uh, to God, um, perhaps, you know, in, in imitation of, uh, of the sacrifices uh, under the law of Moses. Um, but, but the way she goes about it is absolutely wrong. <laughs> it's about the worst way you could do it. You know, because you've got, I mean, the Israelites were, were very strictly forbidden from making images. You know, and we, we all know the story of, in, the, uh, in the, the, the wilderness, the people at the, at the bottom of the, of the mountain of God waiting for Moses to return. And we know the story. Aaron ends up making the, the image of the golden calf. Um, and uh, it's just a clear violation of God's will. And they can't seem to, they, they keep falling back into that. Yeah, that's what brought that was that was brought to my mind too as I'm thinking about them making this idol because one of the things when we on this show discussed Exodus and this creation of the of the false idol while you know Aaron's getting tired and the people are getting tired of waiting on Moses one of the things that I learned is that it's very possible that when they lifted up this golden calf and said, you know, this is Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I always had found that very odd. Like they know that that's not Yahweh, right? They they they've seen Yahweh in his manifestations in the pillars. They've seen him in the in the stormy activity on the mountain. They've seen him work through Moses. They they know that a, a golden calf they just made doesn't have that power, right? And that's when I learned that very likely the idol itself was supposed to be a throne for the god whatever God that they would worship, you know, the God of the city, the household gods, et cetera. So when they made this golden calf, they're, they're worshiping the one true God by making him a throne, but that that's sacrilegious because he's not commanded them to make a throne. And so we see that same curious mix of a true religion, in this case, offering, dedicating, as you said, sacrificing something precious to God, and also a mix of false religion, making an idol, which is clearly forbidden. So she makes, she takes the silver, she dedicates it for a wrong purpose. Um, I think this stands out for us today because God has revealed to us very clearly throughout history how he wants to be worshipped. And while we yes. certainly have a, a, a good, healthy understanding that there exists Audiophora, right? A, a wide range of things that are free for us to do or not do. There yes. are still, uh, to, to use a turn of phrase, you know, we, there's still opportunities for us to offer strange fire to the Lord that He doesn't want, and this is one of those cases where, probably with the best intentions, they're oh, disobeying God. They're they're and and it's demonstrating to us just how I don't want to I want to say rebellious, not necessarily in the sense that. Micah and his mother yet have done anything particularly rebellious. It's just they don't know any better because, as the refrain goes in Judges, everyone's just doing what's right in their own eyes. Do you see examples yes. of that today, though, right? Because we see people who they want to worship the Lord, so the intentions are there, and we, we're careful not to judge their intentions. But then the way they go about it really betrays that they're worshiping the one true God because they're not following after his will. I think some of the charismatic practices and other things. I, I think that phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, is one of the scariest uh, statements in Scripture, uh, just because of what you were saying. And, and it, it demonstrates itself. As you were speaking, I was remembering something, a, a previous story, and that is about Rebecca. Um, as Re Rebecca, or was it Rachel? No, I think it was Rebecca. Rebecca. Um, coming from her father Laban's house 
Um, and uh, if I remember correctly, now I might be a little confused about this. Please correct me if I am. Um, but uh, actually takes with her household idols and hides them. Um, now you right, she's me. hiding. Yeah, she's hiding yes. the household idols. I, we you, we yeah. actually covered that one too. Uh, yeah, and so that's uh, you know Jacob and his family. They're they're fleeing from um, the the fa their father in law Laban, and it is it is Rachel. Rachel. And so she hides she hides her father's household idols with her. You know these little I don't know maybe statues or something like that, and then. You know, Laban's very angry about it. He accuses him of stealing the idols because Rachel's right. hidden them in her camel saddle. Right, yeah, that story, exactly. So the, the idolatry was part of the, was in the family. Right. And and it continued in, in Israel in spite of uh, God's best efforts to instruct them through Moses. Yeah, time and again, he's made it clear that he's not, well, first of all, he's a jealous God. He his, has no intentions of sharing them with the gods of the nations around them or anywhere else. I think it also shows us the depths of which people will be religious, um, but religious in the wrong ways. And, and I guess the reason I side there um, is because I hear too often in today's, you know, conversations about how, well, you know, we shouldn't be religious. We should just love Jesus, or it's not about religion. It's about Jesus as if there isn't a true religion. And so I think while religion gets a bad, uh, I guess, a bad rap, um, there is a true way to be religious, and there's a false way to be religious. The Pharisees, for instance, were incredibly religious people. Um, Laban was a very religious person, you can tell, because he had all those household idols, but it wasn't the true religion. Yes. And I think we see here Micah and his mother, and they're really, really religious people. And part of their religion is the God of their fathers, Yahweh. But because everyone's doing what was right in his own eyes, because there's no king, this is before the time there was a king in Israel to help, uh, you know, establish boundaries. We don't have any sign right now that there's a judge that's leading the people, or if he is, he's not mentioned, or if she is, she's not mentioned. But what we do see is that people are just commingling and mixing their religious behaviors. So, yeah, they're very religious. Micah makes a shrine, it says in verse 5. He makes an ephod, you know, a vest. He makes, yes. he makes household gods, and he ordains one of his sons to be a priest. So this is like a do-it-yourself kind of religion. You know, it, it's, it's, it's banned in Israel. It will be banned in the future for sure. Um, you know, the worship of Yahweh isn't to be just a you and God, you at your house, you can just do what you want. Um, this is a, an abomination before the Lord. And it reminds me a lot of growing up down south where, you know, a lot of folks down there, if they decide that they don't like their church, they'll just open up a steel building and start their own church. And then you have one church after another after another, and you got all these little churches of 10, 15, 30 people. Sometimes they get 100 people. Sometimes they get 500 people. But they're established because they don't want to follow after a denomination or they don't want to commit themselves to a body of doctrine or, or just because they decide they want to be a preacher. And so I, in addition to that, have also heard of cases where, you know, dad is going to do little communion services with with the, the family at home or, you know, a family goes on vacation and they're going to do their own little uh, rituals. And so we have to be very careful that we don't, you know, conflate being religious with being true to the way that God wants us to worship him. Have you experienced anything like that? Yes. And I, I saw, I saw that uh, demonstrated, you made a reference to it. Um, something I, I lived in West Virginia for about 25 years and uh, got to know a lot of people from out in the country, up one hollow or another, and uh, met people who attended all kinds of different churches and they would spring up and collapse and spring up and, 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 and people would, they would, they would, uh, they would bring in preachers with, with no training 
because there were individuals who felt that they felt that they were called. Um, and so they would, they would, they, they would take those positions. Um, and, and they, and some of them would, would be very knowledgeable about scripture, but there were no doctrinal constraints. Well, and that's, what's really tough too, right? Because, you know, it's not as though we're saying, you know, you have to, I don't know, be a part of a particular denomination to proclaim the true word of God. I don't think that's the case. But aligning yourself with people, putting yourself, you know, not calling yourself to be a pastor, but rather being called by a congregation to be their pastor gives you those constraints by which you are aligning yourself to the, the church, you know, the historic, you know, you're, you're keeping yourself grounded. And that's the danger. And that's what I definitely see going on here with Micah. There is this desire to be his own, not only his own God, but his own priest to create his own religion. And he's doing it in a way that almost, and I don't want to say it is intentionally mocking the way that God had given them to worship, but what has he done? You know, in the house of Micah, the man Micah sets up a shrine. He makes an ephod, right? We think of Aaron and the ephod containing the Urim and Thurim, um, or yeah. Thurim. And then we, uh, then he, he makes household gods, plural, and then he ordains one of his own sons. So then he just grabs little Billy here and says, <laughs> okay, you're the priest. Uh, it, it just, it almost seems comical, and it makes you wonder what his mother is thinking. Because his mother, it all started because he stole from her. So it's like, well, I'm a thief. I feel bad because you put a curse on whoever it is. So to override the curse, mom's going to bless him. She's going to take that silver and she's going to make an idol out of it. He's going to set up a whole shrine around the idol, ordain one of his own kids to be the priest. It, it just is, a, is a, a fascinating display of how they are so rudderless when it comes to true worship in the Lord? Well, I think that's an important issue, and I think that's one of the major things that's demonstrated in this chapter, in this story particularly, and that is the, that they were essentially isolated uh, from, from the religion prescribed by God through Moses that was centered around the tabernacle. And and the, the the sacrifices at the tabernacle, and and that was a that was to be a gathering place for the people of Israel wherever the ta tabernacle was. That was a gathering place for Israel. But these families, they just you know went off on their own, isolated from from the rest of the of their religious group, you might say. That makes a lot of sense. You know, the isolation that you mentioned, you know, in the absence of any sort of spiritual authority, it, that's what led to this refrain that we see, this sort of motto of judges, that everyone's just doing what was right in his own eyes. And I suppose it bears at least asking the question, when they're doing whatever's right in their own eyes, we know it's sinful because sin simply means missing the mark of what God has established, trespassing outside the boundaries God has given you, and they are doing that, so it is sinful. But are the sins intentional in the sense that they're sitting there thinking, well, I'm going to worship in a way that is an abomination to God, or are they just merely the product of their environment, which says they wouldn't know where to look anymore to find true spiritual guidance, guide, uh, guiding if they wanted to. I think that's a good point because it reminds me of the Jesus of the encounter that Jesus had with the woman at Jacob's well, who was clearly misguided and needed a shepherd to to bring her back into a relationship uh, with her father in heaven. Um, but on on the other hand, did not seem to be sincere in in her in her uh, in her in, what would you call it her misguided ways, <laughs> which was common for the for the people around her. I think that says a lot. I think that says a lot because you're right. She she was eager for the Messiah. She just wasn't yes. informed correctly. 
And I think that that should tell us a lot about the people who are worshiping around us. And while we give thanks and praise that, that you know, at least to the human uh, ability or the best human capacity that we can think of, we are worshiping rightly and uh, we repent when we don't. But there are so many around us in this world who are not willfully trying to anger God, but rather are misguided. And I think it should give us a purpose like Jesus to to guide people into the true light rather than just merely stand on the sidelines and judge them and shake our heads. That is kind of an awesome responsibility when you think about it. And it's a challenge. It very much is. We can be we can be misinterpreted as being uh, judgmental or or hateful, and that's what's so tough, you know. Because when everyone's doing what is right in his own eyes, um, that phrase, you know, it's it's right in his own eyes. It's it's this is the right way. And then we live in an era where now there is no right or wrong. It's whatever is true or right for you. So each person, since they have access to their own so-called truth, as the modern thinking goes, well, then they can do whatever they want, and you don't have a right to correct them otherwise. It's really tough when you're having to step out and act in the, the will and place of God and tell people, no, you're actually wrong. It's tough. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we ponder that just for a few minutes as we take just a couple of minutes for a break, folks. Don't go anywhere. When Pastor Yar and I come back, we're going to keep on going and finish up Judges chapter 17. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Philby. With me today is the Reverend Terry Yar, pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Chillicothe, Ohio. Folks, I'm so grateful that you've joined us this morning, whether you're on the air with us live or on demand at kfuo.org, or you're listening to us as a podcast. I'm just glad that you're here. If you enjoy listening to Thy Strong Word, would you be so kind as to share your love of the show with your friends and your family? Also, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Facebook. Just drop by and say hello. I'm so encouraged that you tune in and grow in faith with me and my guest each weekday. So thank you again for listening. Well, Pastor Yar, before the break, you know, we had really gotten through the first half of our section. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Um, anything else about this first half before we move on to the next? Oh, I think we pretty well covered it. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, there's, there's, we have this limited narrative, uh, and it, it's amazing how much we can learn and talk about it, but at some point, you know, you just got to keep going. So let's do that. We're going to read verses 7 through 13, which actually is going to finish up the uh, chapter for us. Here we go. Now, there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes for your living. 
And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that Yahweh will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. Well, what a turn in the narrative, because when we finished the first half, it just kind of seemed like the story was over. You know, it, you know, there's this guy, he steals money from his mom. Then they try to make up for it by basically taking the money and creating a little altar and shrine and their own little kind of mini church right there in the house, or little, uh, little mini, sh- mini uh, place of worship, little mini temple. Uh, and then it ends with everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But then the story continues because now we are introduced to a Levite. We don't receive his name. And he's traveling out of Bethlehem and he finds his way to Micah's house. And Micah could not be more happy because now he has uh, someone who's, uh, who can be a real priest because he's a Levite. Uh, take us through this. What? What in the world? You know, I just I think it's just such a fascinating turn because um, Micah continues to double down. It's like he's not getting the expected results from his worship that that he wanted. Oh, it's this is the situation. When I first read it, I, my reaction was this is bizarre, and reading it even now, my reaction is this is bizarre <laughs> because to, to begin with, because uh, the young man is not. Uh, identified as a son of Aaron. And uh, the, the Levites were, not all Levites had the privilege of serving as priests, only only the descendants of, uh, of Aaron, the high priest. You know, and so what is he, and why is he wandering through the countryside looking for a, 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 a better gig, you might say? You know, that's what he seems to be doing. Yeah, we don't we don't get a ton of information about why he's sojourning sojourning out of Bethlehem, but yeah, that makes uh huh, that makes a lot of sense that I hadn't considered. You know, not only is Micah perhaps uh, going to have this windfall of a of a real life Levite, but rather, you know, maybe this Levite is not satisfied with the position that he's been given. Um, and that's an interesting point that you made that I hadn't considered either, and that is that not all Levites could serve as priests, only the, the, the male descendants of Aaron. So is this just another example of commingling or misunderstanding what God has established? Because clearly Micah thinks that the fact that this guy is a Levite means something. Well, yes, and, and the fact that he ordains him, which uh, is, I think, the— the context suggests that this is something very serious. That this is the, because or to ordain is simply to, to set aside, but but this is a very formal relationship. That when he ordains him uh, as as his priest, household priest, uh, I also think it's interesting that he refers to him as a father, but then he treats him as one of his sons. Uh, that stood no. out to me too. He's like, "Be a father to me," and then it says he treated him as his son. Um, yes, I guess I was thinking maybe spiritual father. Like he's outsourcing. Mm-hmm. He's trying to start up his own little religion here. He's got his temple going, and he's ordained one of his sons. But now here's an outsider. It's almost like it's almost like this is going to give credibility to my little house of worship here. Yes, yeah. The other thing is they strike, and I don't, I don't want to steal anything from the next chapter, but oh, that's okay. you read the next chapter, this whole situation gets worse. It's, it's hard to imagine it getting worse, but it gets worse. <laughs> and, and, and it shows something about the attitude of the Levite, and that is uh, he's looking for the best situation he can find. Well, Levites, you know, because they didn't have the inheritance in the same way that the other tribes did, they were taken care of. And so it seems like, once again, we have Micah following, in general, the pattern that God has set apart. He has the ephod, he has the shrine, he's set up the gods, he's now 
Uh, he's ordained his son. Now he's got a Levite. But of course, this Levite, he's going to have to take care of. So he says, all right, I'm going to give you. And now we're back to these pieces of silver again. I'm going to give you uh, pieces of silver and I'm going to make I give you room and board and I'm going to give you some clothes. Makes me wonder if those clothes were priestly clothes. Maybe that's the why they why they mentioned it. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, it seems like he's he's just have his own little his own little uh, oh, you know discount version of God's uh, tabernacle. That's a really interesting way of putting it. Yes. <laughs> so you know he's not. He's wandering from place to place, this Levite, and he comes to Micah's house. And, of course, we're not told how they connected. We don't know if perhaps the Levite uh, heard about Micah and maybe, you know, hey, this guy's sort of starting up his own thing. Um, but anyway, the stranger just sort of comes to his door, and Micah asks him about it, gives him some suit and clothes. It's this generous art uh, uh, articles of, of clothing and this gener generous wages what is it? Ten, you know, ten shekels is pretty much the average. Um, uh, or well, that's I can't say average or adequate, but it's good wages. Let's just say. Um, and so now he's this father and priest. And still, and again, it doesn't tell us, but it makes me wonder then about what Micah's son so far is thinking about all of this, uh, because now if Micah has a shrine and two priests. And he has the funds to continuously pay a Levite priest to help him, not to mention take care of his whole family and his mother. Um, I can't help but think that he's making a, I guess to be crass about it, he's making a business out of this shrine. I, I can see that possibility, yes, entirely. Uh, especially uh, toward the end there when he says, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. What does he mean by prosper me? Um, does that mean that, that he'll give me a successful business in this effort? I, I think it could be. Yeah, because when I first read it, I'm thinking, okay, well, he has this curse that he's afraid of. But, of course, there's no evidence that he's experiencing the symptoms of a curse. Then he has this blessing that mom hopes overrides it. But then they set up the shrine in hopes that God will bless him, but he's not getting the expected results. So perhaps now, yeah, as you said, he's, he's hoping that this will, this will take care of it. God will now really bless him. But, but boy, it just exposes the, the false confidence and delusion that Micah has created for himself because now he just knows that Yahweh is going to be good to him because he has like a bona fide Levite, which is really just almost cosmically amusing, because what he's relying on is his own created form of religion, whereby he's taken Yahweh and intercommingled him into his own ideas. And that, of course, is going to provoke God's wrath, really, because it's, this is no different idolatry than it would be is if he were just worshiping the Baals and the Asheroths and everything else. And I think this speaks a lot again today. When we worship the Lord, it's so important that we worship in a way that is consistent with what God has given us to worship, that we don't just um, try to make things new and novel for the sake of entertaining the crowds, because in doing so, we might be setting up idols and, and presenting God in ways that he hasn't authorized us to do. What do you think? I mean, do you think that's a step too far when I say that? No, no. I think that's, in, I think that's, in, uh, I think in, entirely that that's, a, that's uh, descriptive of, of our uh, situation today. We, we see so much of that in our society where uh, people who are religious and may even claim to be associated with Christianity or may claim to be Christian themselves. And then you, uh, you begin to act, uh, examine what they believe and how they live. And it's contrary to what we've been taught in scripture. And I, I think that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing an example of that uh, living and living in, and believing in a way that's, that's contrary to scripture because scripture didn't allow for, uh, for that kind of, of priestly service to occur outside of the tabernacle. Um, 
Yeah, it, it makes me wonder, you know, with him basing his confidence on these, just it's almost like things he's heard. You know, he's hired a Levite, but he doesn't fully understand that just any average Levite doesn't make them a, a, a legitimate priest. And, and then he's he's following after God, but but it's in ways that it's almost like the telephone game where he's he's you know, the 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 traditions have been passed down so inadequately. And I think today we see that in our culture today too, because when people, let's say when someone dies, like a, a famous person dies, I don't know if you notice, but all famous people go to heaven, no matter what, it doesn't <laughs> matter if, if they're a Buddhist or uh, an atheist or a Christian or a Muslim, if they were famous, then how does everybody talk about them? Oh, they're in heaven or they're all, they're all at peace with the Lord or with God, or, you know, even people who don't believe in God talk about, um, you know, someone who their their favorite rock star who passes away as as being you know at peace forever. There's this misunderstanding of what what it, what God is, who God is, um, and even when we do things, let's say for the sake of emphasizing the good nature of God, like His love, but we do that to the detriment of His justice, then we we also are presenting a false idol of who God is. And I see that so often today in all the churches around us, and we always have to be careful about it too, that we're not worshiping a God of our own creation, and we're not setting up worship uh, to be a, a mockery of what he has set up. So, you know, I, I, I think of these worship services where you go and, well, we don't say the creed because, well, the creed's too old-fashioned, and we don't say the Lord's Prayer because, well— you know, we, we don't want people to feel uncomfortable. And well, we're not going to put any crosses or anything like that up that reminds us of Jesus because then it makes people feel bad. And well, we're not going to talk about sin because, and the next thing you know, you may be calling upon the name of the one true God, but are you really worshiping him? Are you really teaching and proclaiming his law and gospel as he wants you to? It's uh, It can be tough for us today too. Yeah, it was a, it's what we... Reflective, I think, of what we were talking about on um, on Easter Sunday, and that is this Paul's uh, Paul's hymn: uh, "The sting of death is is sin, and the strength of sin is the law." Uh, but thanks be to God uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who gives us the uh, who gives us the victory rather through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm kind of misquoting there, but uh, but the point is that uh, if we we need to preach about sin. We, we people need to understand that we don't deserve God's love. If we don't understand that, then we don't understand who we are as human beings and, and why we need God to intervene for us. And that's so important that, that we, we talk about it as Lutherans all the time by our own reason or strength. We can't come to God. We, we don't choose God. God chooses us. And those things are very important. But I think we sometimes will mouth the words that we're poor, miserable sinners without really reflecting on the fact that, no, we're poor, miserable sinners. God doesn't need anything from us. We need everything from Him. And when we make worship about what we're doing for God, it certainly is making a mockery of the style of worship that He has given us, which is about serving us, the divine service as we talk about it. Um, and so we see here, too, that Micah is just going through the motions. He's he's a very religious person, but that doesn't make his religion true. Um, do you want to give just a little bit of hint of what happens next? Because, you know, while we're going to talk about it tomorrow, chapter 18, um, the, 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 the story keeps going with Micah, um, and the Danites come. <laughs> they, I guess they hear about this uh, this little shrine, this thing that Micah's got going on. And uh, well, they hear about it because of spies, but then uh, they they take some action against him. Well, I guess for themselves. Yeah, I've heard I've, I've actually run across some interesting stories about the Danites, but I don't want to get into those. It's kind of mythical stuff. Um, sure. But but I, what I found interesting is is uh, what was referred to earlier, and that is that they come along, they invite my they invite uh, this Levite to become their priest. And uh, and and there, the the advantage of their invitation is there's a lot more of us. Uh, so you 
<laughs> so you get to you get to serve a lot more people. So it's a better gig. Um, and that's what that's what this guy is clearly just looking for. And that's why you shouldn't hire, uh, you know, some some illegitimate wayward traveling priest to be your to be your special Levite, Levite priest, because once a better deal comes along, he's going to take it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, anything else about this text or anything else you'd like to share with the people today? Oh, it's just been a joy to participate with you in this discussion. I, I, I always thoroughly enjoy talking with people about uh, the stories in Scripture and, and about the love of God in Christ. Um, well, it's, it's wonderful. Well, this has been a great one, too, and I've loved having you on the show. Folks, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Terry Yar. He's the pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Chillicothe, Ohio. Pastor, again, thanks so much for being on. God bless. When we return, folks, Judges 18 continues the story of Micah and his idolatrous shrine that began in today's chapter. And as we already alluded to, it tells the story of how the tribe of Dan conquered a city in the north and then established their own place of worship there. And what do they do? Well, you've heard it. They hire away Micah's <laughs> Levite priest, they set up Micah's idol in their city. And they continue to worship that idol until the captivity of Israel. So, you know, Micah, his idol, his shrine, it actually keeps going for quite a bit of Israel's history. Uh, what a way to end the week, which we'll do tomorrow. But join us then. I'm sure we'll have a lot to discern and learn. Until tomorrow, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong work.